Yes, uh, medical trauma is something that I feel affects almost everyone with chronic illness, certainly almost everyone with our contested chronic illness, such as ME, but also many people with, for example, multiple sclerosis or arthritis, they also get treated badly by doctors because it's still going on. It's continuous trauma. It's not in your past. You know that if you have to go to the hospital, you, you probably are still going to be treated badly. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Author and writer Maya Havisto caught my attention with her article titled Medical Trauma, Gaslighting and Continuous Stress Eating Away at Your Self-Worth. In her writing, Maya accurately captures the consequences of harmful medical experiences I witness in my counseling clients. As I've said elsewhere, medical error and trauma are the unacknowledged pandemics within our healthcare systems. Maya grew up in Finland, a healthy child until she got the flu as a teenager and never recovered. Kicked out of an abusive home at 16, as she struggled with sickness, Maya relied on her writing prowess and carved out a successful career as a journalist and medical writer who has authored 17 books in Finnish. Along the way, Maya's health has fluctuated. She eventually got a diagnosis of ME-CFS, moved to the Netherlands partly for healthcare reasons in 2010, but she has never been totally healthy again. Of course, having undiagnosed and unrecognized symptoms and then getting a diagnosis of a medically marginalized disease means Maya has had to have numerous encounters with the healthcare system, encounters that more often than not would be stressful and trauma-inducing. But Maya has taken her lived experience with the chronic disease, ME-CFS, and her more recent experience with long COVID, and her encounters with the healthcare system, and uses those elements to inform her writing. Maya makes the point that medical trauma is different from post-traumatic stress. As Maya writes in her article, and I quote, 
Another aspect that makes medical trauma particularly pernicious is the way we may be forced to face our abuser and pretend nothing has happened. Even if we manage to cut them off, their pointed comments may stick in our medical files." Unquote. And that's exactly what distinguishes PTSD from continuous medical trauma. If you have a complex chronic illness, especially one that is medically marginalized, you probably cannot divorce yourself completely from the healthcare system to try to protect yourself from further abuse and trauma. You are forced to continue to engage with your traumatizer, both the physician and the healthcare system. And that's what makes medical trauma continuous, and some would say chronic medical trauma. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounters with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Maya and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Maya's experiences with the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, Maya. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I'm uh, 36 years old. I was born in Helsinki, Finland. And uh, yeah, I guess I had a pretty normal childhood. <laughs> yeah, I was a healthy child. I was unusually healthy. I almost never needed to skip school. <laughs> Okay, and so where did your education take you? I actually didn't get to finish my education because I got sick when I was just 16, so I haven't even finished high school. Oh, okay, so tell us what happened when you were 16. Yeah, so I was completely healthy uh, before this, but when I, was, when I was 15, I got this viral infection which uh, it, it felt like the flu, but I didn't have any like runny nose or cough or anything like that. I just had a fever and felt really sick and fatigue and low appetite and that kind of things. And two months later, the same thing happened again, which was weird. I, I mostly recovered from that, but was left with some lingering fatigue and then this was uh, the year 2000 and in August when I was 16 I suddenly got the fever and the fever just never stopped and then I started getting more symptoms. Okay so what was your family and your doctor thinking at the time? Well, I didn't actually see a doctor at first because I figured that, well, I have a virus. What can I do? You can't really treat viruses. And my parents weren't really concerned. 
but uh, that that year was a pretty difficult one we had uh, difficulties with my parents uh, mostly my mom I, I don't think my mom really understood that I was sick in in the end she kicked me out when I had just got sick so yeah I, I'm 16 and I'm sick and she kicked me out that could have been a really yeah, big problem but uh, I, I was lucky I was able to find work as a freelance journalist for a computer magazine which is a real stroke of luck when you're 16 and I was able to find a very cheap apartment as well so it worked out surprisingly well but at, at that time well it it, it it was quite an ordeal <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an understatement, Maya. Uh, yeah, so it sounds like that's also why you had to quit school at the time. Not only were you sick, but you had to earn a living to survive. Yes, it's really like I, I worked very little, like uh, five hours per week. I, I was just able to pay my rent with that. I, I didn't have to quit school because of working, but really like I, I couldn't. I didn't have the energy to go to school. Okay, so you're quite ill at that time if you're only able to manage five hours of work a week. I, 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 I felt I was only mildly ill because I didn't have that many symptoms. Yet. I, I mostly had the fever and fatigue and uh, later I developed much more new symptoms. Yeah, it's it's so strange to think about that time, and it's like it all feels a bit hazy. I think it's just like I, I was focused on surviving and couldn't I couldn't really afford to think about my illness too much. Okay, so here you are, a very young adult, have forced out onto your own and working while quite ill. Where did your life take you? I, I was really lucky to find that freelance job. So I, I continued uh, working for that, that computer magazine for six years. I, I did really enjoy the work. Uh, later, I started writing for more magazines and I started, I got interested in medicine. I started doing medical writing. So it really like just finding that one job it was kind of almost like a miracle and it kickstarted my writing career. Yeah, and so when you started doing research and articles on medicine, when did that intersect with your own health challenges and when did you either figure out or get a diagnosis? Yeah, that, that was an interesting journey. I originally got interested in medicine before I even got sick. Uh, I, I was writing fiction and I, I wanted to write a novel about a girl with cancer, which of course is a subject done to death, but well, I was 15, so maybe I, I just thought that, well, cancer is dramatic and stuff. So I studied, I at that point I was using the internet, but the internet was very different than it is now. 
So I was mostly relying on the local library. Like I checked out all the books on cancer and I, I read like books on all the cancer drugs and stuff that most 15 year olds would probably consider very boring. But somehow I was, it, it, for me, it was fascinating. So you had this pre-existing interest in medicine through your writing. And then how did you discover what was your diagnosis? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that my own interest helped a lot. Uh, two years after I had got sick, I was watching Finnish TV and there was this talk show on fibromyalgia, which I had never heard of. Something about it really caught my attention. Like I figured I don't have pain, so this is not what I have. But I still ended up Googling a lot. And then I found out about chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis. And that sounded more like what I had. So tell folks who aren't familiar with ME what the hallmark symptom is and how that can often be the number one clue to, that you have ME. Yeah, so my problem was fatigue, but I also had a chronic fever, which is not a very common symptom. And if you read about chronic fever in medical textbooks, it sounds really bad. Mostly the textbooks say like, well, you probably have cancer or like tuberculosis or, well, you, you're probably dying. When I found about CFSME, I found that besides fatigue, it can also sometimes cause chronic fever. So, of course, that really made me interested. Also, very typical of CFSME is that people get sick after a viral infection, very suddenly. They are completely healthy, and then they get the virus, and they just never get better. So you were able to connect the dots based on your own research and, and Googling. Uh, when did the medical system uh, validate your diagnosis and what was your experience with the medical system during that period of time? The problem with when you have CFSME, it's a very misunderstood illness, basically all over the world. And in, in many countries, it's still thought to be psychological, even though it's not, or it's just not understood at all. And in Finland, the problem was that basically no doctors had even heard of it at that time. So it was really hard trying to find a diagnosis. Imagine going to doctors saying, hey, I found this on the internet. And they have never heard of it. So you're not off to a great start. Yeah, so there is challenges with the medical system and getting a diagnosis and doctors just not being educated about it. And I also hear that the, you experienced some gaslighting. Yeah, but so I was uh, two years, I, I had somehow decided that, okay, 
uh, once I've ha had the fever for two years, if, if that happens, then I really have to seek medical care. And of course, at that point, many, many people had told me that you, you might have cancer. I figured that, well, I've had fever for two years, so if it was cancer, I'd probably be dead now. But so I, I went to some doctors and they suspected, for example, hypothyroidism, which can also cause fatigue, but it doesn't cause fever. So I, I wasn't really convinced and the test showed that I didn't have that. I, I did manage to get uh, uh, an ECG test, so like the heart film, and uh, that one made me worry because the, the test comes with a computer analysis, and the analysis suggested that I had had uh, a heart attack. That seemed a bit unlikely as I was 18. So the doctor was like, no, there's, it's probably, you know, computers make mistakes. So I figured, I, I guess that makes sense. I probably didn't have a heart attack at 18. <laughs> but later I found out that the doctor who told me that I had nothing to worry about and also told me I should exercise more. L later I found that the same doctor had in fact diagnosed me with myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, which is pretty bad. And the treatment for it is to avoid exercise. That was a really puzzling experience. And I literally, I only found out years later about the diagnosis because he never told me. It just told me I was fine and to exercise more. Wow, that that goes beyond medical error to blatant lying. It, it, it was so weird, like when I tell people, everyone is like, how is that even possible? How, how can someone tell you to exercise more when you have a condition where the only treatment is to avoid exercise? And people are like, did you sue him? Did you make a complaint? Well, I only found that years later. And also, uh, at, at least in Finland, generally, uh, a medical error is considered to be something that harms you. And while I could have been harmed, I didn't follow his advice. So technically, this is not considered a medical error in Finland. So yeah, as you go through the medical system, they try these other diagnosis on you and misdiagnosis and ignoring diagnosis. When, if at all, did they confirm that you had ME-CFS? Well, I, I did end up seeing a few more doctors after that. This is still when I'm 18. And I think because I was very young, so doctors didn't really think I could have anything serious. I had some tests done, but they were normal. And for example, one doctor told me that if I stopped taking my temperature, it would go normal, which 
was uh, like a, basically he was he was saying that I was only making it up or something. Uh, after that, I didn't see doctors for a few years because I figure that well, if I have this condition, as I was quite convinced, it wasn't possible to get diagnosed in Finland. Then in 2005, so three years later, I got an email from someone in Helsinki and she told me that her husband had got diagnosed at the infectious disease clinic uh, at the Helsinki University Hospital. I was able to uh, get a referral there and then I finally got the diagnosis. So it took five years, which sounds very long, especially when you're very young, but it's also quite a short time to get the diagnosis of CFSME. Yeah, that, that's the sad truth. So uh, that was in about 2005 that you got the diagnosis? Uh, it sounds like it was very isolating illness at that up to that point in time, but I also hear that you had connected with other folks in the community. Um, tell me more about the ME community in Finland, if there is one, and sort of the advocacy that you folks are doing. Basically, uh, as I explained, uh, ME was all but, it, it was unknown in Finland. There was nothing, like there was one website that had one page of information from the from a university hospital in Finland, but that was in Northern Finland. So there was nothing else. So in 2006, I set up my own website about CFSME. And I wondered, I set up a forum, but it really seemed like, how, how would the people even find their way there when it seemed like almost no one was able to get the diagnosis, but it did work out and the, the forum became more and more popular and people learned that they could go to this infectious disease clinic and they could get the diagnosis. And there were even some treatments available. You really sort of spearheaded that uh, community and public awareness of ME and the resource that was available. And so then you mentioned about some of the treatments available. How has your experience been with some of the treatments? The treatments available in Finland were a bit unusual. For example, the main treatment for ME at this hospital was prednisone, which is a steroid used in many like autoimmune diseases. There is some evidence that ME might be an autoimmune disease. Uh, steroids generally don't help it. But I, I had a very unusual case because for me, prednisone actually helped me for about six months and then it stopped working. And what sort of impact did it have? What symptoms did it help with? It, for me, it was a very major help. It, it made me feel almost healthy for a few months. And it was also, it, it wasn't just the impact on my symptoms. But when I told people that the uh, doctors at the uh, infectious 
disease clinic at the Helsinki University Hospital had prescribed me prednisone. And many people do recognize the name prednisone. So suddenly many people were taking me seriously. And so it quit working after six months, which is not an unusual experience for people with ME that the medications may work and may only work for a short period of time. What do you suspect is going on? That is a very interesting question, especially for me personally, as I have tried many, many treatments after that, both medications and supplements and other kinds of uh, treatments like diet changes and uh, supplemental oxygen. And yes, for me, it seems like everything stops working. Many doctors have suggested reasons why this may be the case. It, it kind of makes sense. Steroids also stop working for some other conditions. But some of the uh, things that have stopped working for me are like the body's own hormones and the things really that you, you wouldn't expect to stop working. I, I don't know, there are many theories, but none of them really match my experience. Yeah, and just circling back a bit to your prednisone experience and how you were a responder, but the majority of people with ME are not responders. I think that really speaks to how there seems to be four or five or six sort of subgroups um, within ME. And that's why some folks respond to some medications and some folks don't. And we just really need to tease out what those subgroups are. I, I don't know anyone who has anyone else who has responded to prednisone nearly as well as me. For me, it was such a dramatic difference. And most people don't get any better or they say like, I think I might be a little bit better, but I'm not sure, but it's also really weird that they con uh, continued prescribing this, this very, this is a strong steroid medication that has a lot of risks and side effects. It can cause diabetes, uh, osteoporosis. It's really like it can wreak havoc on your body. And interestingly, I wasn't told anything about side effects at all and I, I because of my medical knowledge I knew exactly what kind of a medication this is but it does make me wonder like were there people who were prescribed it they didn't know what it was they maybe didn't notice anything but they continued taking it in hopes that maybe it will kick in later and then they suffered horrible side effects without any benefit. So it, it, that was really puzzling for me. Yeah, that is unusual. So fast forwarding to the present day, how is your health now? What's helping you um, sort of maintain the quality of life that you do have? Um, like I said, I have tried so many different uh, treatments and the only one that's uh, really like that's not stopped working for me is low dose naltrexone or LDN, which is uh, 
nowadays I would say it's almost the first line treatment for ME and it's also used for many autoimmune diseases and fibromyalgia and many other conditions and it's still for the first four years that I was taking LDN that is 2007 to 2011 I had very little fatigue I had the, the hallmark symptom of ME is post-exertional malaise which is like all kinds of effort, all kinds of exertion, whether it's exercise or stress or like talking to people, everything makes you worse. But the first years when I was on LDN, I didn't really have that at all. That also, the difference was so huge the first years, but Nowadays, the difference isn't quite that big anymore, but I, I definitely feel it's still helping me. Uh, I, I can commiserate in that I also take LDN and it, it, it really helps me too. I tried about a year ago to taper off it to see if it was helping. I, yeah, and it was definitely helping. I would wake up feeling nauseous and sick in the morning and having slept poorly. So it, it helps with that for me. But I've heard other folks say that LDN helps with their pain, but um, I think you said you don't experience pain. Yeah, I, I don't have pain, but it, it helps with my fatigue, with the post-exertional stuff. It, it helped with the fever, like I still had the fever, but it was like, I, I think when the fever went down, my body kind of got used to the remaining very low-grade fever, so it didn't really bother me very much. And it, it helped me with m many symptoms, like skin symptoms and all kinds of immune symptoms. But yeah, I, I don't have pain, but people do who do have pain often respond well to LDN. So here it's been about 20 years since you got sick with a virus that you just thought was the flu and you've never recovered. And now we're in wave two of most of the world in the COVID pandemic, which is another virus. And we're hearing in the media reports about long COVID or long haulers, the folks who are not recovering from COVID. What's, what are your thoughts and feelings about witnessing what's going on with the people with long COVID? I actually, I, I also, I got COVID back in March and I still have some symptoms from it. A few weeks ago, I had a, this period of several weeks when my fever was really bad, even though it was more than six months after having COVID. And I occasionally, I still have like, I, I feel like I can't breathe and I have my blood doesn't clot properly. I have, it's really, I have this like a very random collection of symptoms. And it, it seems to me like Emmy has so many possible symptoms. It can uh, affect almost any body system. And there are people who have like a hundred different symptoms. And I also have many symptoms myself. It just doesn't even make sense to talk about all the minor symptoms when you 
constantly have fatigue. But COVID uh, symptoms also seem like seems like it's almost the only illness that is like more random than any or that can affect even more different body systems than ME. And I also like I've, I've had friends like I had I, I knew someone who was completely healthy and now she believes that she has ME from COVID. And I, I know people who still feel they are healthy, but they still struggle with some mysterious or random symptoms. And I also know many people with ME who also got COVID and now they're worse. So what are your thoughts now you've had this personal experience of ME and long COVID? Are they the same or in a Venn diagram? How much overlap are they? What are your thoughts? I, I do think that many people with long COVID do have ME, but it's also some people don't have fatigue. They may have 20 different symptoms, but they don't have fatigue. There are people who may have fatigue, but they also have severe damage and it's almost like the fatigue pales in comparison to scared lungs. I, I, I do think many people have ME. They likely often also have something else. So it, it's complicated and I feel like people with long COVID feel like those with ME are kind of saying that they all have ME and people with ME feel like those with lung COVID, they are distancing themselves from this illness with a very poor reputation. So yeah, I, I think it's complex. I, I think most people with ME kind of, we, we knew when the pandemic was starting, we knew that it would cause long-term effects. We were really worried about that. I, I have to say, I've been surprised how common the long-term effects are and how really like it can affect any of your organs. I, I wasn't expecting it to be this bad. Yeah, I just read a, a headline of an article this morning that was finding the majority of people that had COVID, even if they were asymptomatic, had neurocognitive impairment. Yeah, and I, I just uh, read on Twitter uh, a tweet from someone who had uh, lost uh, all her limbs to COVID. Like she, she had all, uh, both of her arms and her legs amputated because of COVID damage, which is really like horrifying to think about L losing your arms and your legs. Yeah, that is a very frightening image. Uh, so Maya, the, we connected most recently uh, because of this awesome article you wrote that caught my attention about medical trauma. Tell us a bit about that article. Yes, uh, medical trauma is something that I feel affects almost everyone with chronic illness, certainly almost everyone with a contested chronic illness such as ME, but also many people with for example, multiple sclerosis or arthritis, they also get treated badly by doctors. Many people feel that they say that 
they have been so badly affected by it that they have a developed post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. But I, I, in my article, I point out that it doesn't really, PTSD doesn't capture the whole, the full impact of this trauma because it's still going on. It's continuous trauma. You, it's not in your past. You know that if you have to go to the hospital, you, you probably are still going to be treated badly. The trauma is in the past. You can go to therapy. You can process the trauma, but if it's like still going on, you cannot heal it the same way because you you are not safe. Normal trauma means that something was unsafe in your past, and you still feel unsafe even though you're not. But continuous trauma means that you are actually unsafe still and in the future. Yeah, that, that is such an important distinction that you made, that uh, folks with marginally medically marginalized illnesses like ME and the other ones that you mentioned, that because we cannot divorce ourselves from the healthcare system, because we still have to engage with the healthcare system, we're still potentially going to be exposed to more trauma in the form, mostly in the form of gaslighting. Yes, but it's also, I, I often feel like that people with ME are kind of underestimating it. They, they feel like that only people with ME or similar illnesses are treated badly. And they may feel like that people with, for example, cancer never get mistreated, which is sadly not true. Yeah, it is embedded in the medical system, the, the gaslighting, the disbelieving of a patient's reporting of their own physical symptoms. And I'm not sure how that got so embedded in our healthcare systems pretty much worldwide, um, but I suspect it goes back to Freud. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid that Freud has something to do with it, but also the general idea idea in medicine that the doctor is always right and if the if you're a doctor if you don't know you can't say you don't know that's a huge problem yeah exactly so maya a couple of final questions for you how much or how much payment are you going to have to give for doing this interview, for sitting up, for chatting with me for this long period of time? What's the impact going to be on your health? That's that's a good question because currently my health has been really going up and down lately. So so much that it's hard to tell. Normally, the LDN still helps me to have quite a mild crash period from activity most me patients for example they might crash for several days and i i don't crash for more than one day unless i do something like really exhausting that's something i still feel like my my health has got worse but i still feel lucky that i i don't have to like uh, stay in bed for days after this, which many people would have to do. 
Uh, so I, I hear you're, you're, you feel lucky that your health isn't as bad as so many folks with ME. What are you hoping for moving forward in terms of your health and in terms of your career? I'm mostly, I'm, I'm so used to my health getting worse. I'm mostly hoping that my health would stay stable, that it doesn't get worse. And I also, I really hope I could uh, shake the rest of the COVID symptoms because they, it does seem like many people, they, even if it lasts for over six months, it still can get better after that. So that, that's what I hope that I, I, I don't get worse and that COVID is gone. As for my career, currently I'm not really able to work. It, it would be lovely to still be able to write the trauma article. Mostly wrote it back a few months ago and even then my health was much better than now. So it feels weird that it was published just weeks ago. So of course people expect me like, well, of course you can write an article, you just did. The thing is currently I can't. And so we'll provide the link to your article in the show notes, but if people were wanting to look for it right now, where would they find that article? Uh, it, it was published in the online website, uh, Medium. Uh, Medium.com. Yeah. And I, I did consider like submitting it to some medical journal or like a more prestigious publication. But the thing is, I also wanted to, I wanted the content to be this. I wanted to really say what I wanted to say instead of an editor saying, well, you have to cut out this and that, and that's too personal. That's, that's too long. I, I just wanted to say everything that I needed to say. Yeah, medium.com is a great uh, platform to creating accessibility to different writings and different opinions. So if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, how would they do that? My main social media is Twitter. There I'm uh, Diamond Die. Well, thank you, Maya, for sharing your experiences and for the advocacy work you're doing and for the awesome articles that you're writing. And I really hope that you shake those COVID symptoms and you manage to at least maintain the quality of life that you've got going on. Thank you. Well, a big thank you to Maya for sharing her medical error experiences. And I encourage everyone to check out Maya's writing. She's a writer and she can be found on medium.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounters with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.